Now I mentioned last time that the book of Exodus is the book of redemption. And we talked about how this is God's picture book and how he's going to save the world. The salvation of Israel and the deliverance of them from Egypt now is going to become a model for us as God is going to depict that same kind of deliverance and redemption, but in a grander scope when Christ comes. And we're going to get the opportunity to look at that tonight as we're going to look at Exodus chapter 1 and uh, begin to see some of the unfolding pictures that begin in regards to redemption. In the first six verses of Exodus 1, we, we kind of are reminded about the connection to Genesis and what we have seen up to this point when you're in the book of Genesis is that we have Jacob and all of his family uh, traveling down to Egypt because of the famine that has struck the land. If you remember, Joseph has seen a vision which had forewarned of that so that Egypt then has stockpiled during the seven years of plenty to prepare for the famine. And so now Joseph and all of his family are are there in Egypt. But, But verse six tells us Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. We have moved past that generation and have now come to yet a a new generation that lies before them. And what is important to remember is that God had made particular promises about what he was going to do. He made promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and even to Joseph about things that were going to happen in the future. And the book of Exodus is going to begin to unfold uh, those events. One of them is stated over in Genesis chapter 46 uh, and in, in verse 4 where God makes this promise to Jacob I myself will go down with you to Egypt and I will also bring you up again and Joseph's hand will close your eyes and so when, when Jacob is reticent about going down to Egypt wisely after learning from his father and grandfather about don't leave the land, you don't leave the promised land, God says, I'm going to go with you and you're going to go down to Egypt, but here is this promise. I'm going to bring you back. You're not going to be down there forever, but I'm going to bring this people back and bring them into this land. This becomes an important overtone for the book of Exodus, as we're going to notice in a moment. The other promise that we need to identify is is directly stated for us in Exodus chapter 1 and in verse 7. Exodus 1 verse 7, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now, you might read that and go, that seems to be kind of a throwaway narrative statement. Okay, uh, they're growing, they're multiplying, they're fruitful, they're exceedingly strong, and they're all over the place and everywhere. But remember what God had promised to the patriarchs, first to Abraham. God said, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Here's this promise. Abraham, your descendants are going to be multiplied. They're going to spread everywhere. And notice, they're going to be strong. He says, they're going to possess the gate of his enemies. They're going to multiply. They're going to be strong. Notice Exodus opens with, they're strong and they're multiplying. God said the same thing to Isaac. Isaac's given this promise by God. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands 
And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge and my commandments and my statutes and my laws. So the promise is given to Abraham. He then states it to Isaac. And then by no surprise, he states it to Jacob in Genesis 35. And God said to him, I am God almighty. Be fruitful and multiply a nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you and I will give the land to your offspring after you. So I want you to see this picture that Genesis had had given is that there's going to be this nation that's going to come from Abraham. It's promised to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. They're going to be fruitful. They're going to be multiplied and they're going to be strong. And what God told Jacob is, and they're going to leave Egypt. They're not going to stay there and they're going to come back from the land. Now listen to how this goes in verse 8 of Exodus 1. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramesses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field and all their work. They ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah and the other Puah. When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, shall she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwife said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all the people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. I want you to see what's being set up for us in this scene is that here is God blessing his people exactly as he promised. I'm going to make a great nation from you, Abraham. I'm going to make this great nation. You're going to be mighty. You're going to be numerous. You're going to be strong. And notice in the process of God blessing his people, it now becomes a problem to this Egyptian king. I would like just as an aside note for you, you will notice He never gets named. 
His name is never provided. He is considered insignificant to the name of God. And so it's just simply the king of Egypt or Pharaoh is all that we're ever given in regards to him. But notice his concern is there in verse 9. Look at these people. They are too mighty and they are too many. And because they're too many, because they're too mighty, we've got to do something about that. Well, that is the very promise that God had made. God had said, I'm going to make this a mighty people and I'm going to make them like the sand of the sea of seashore and of the stars of the sky and what exodus is already doing is setting up that we have a conflict between the ruler of egypt because he is setting up his purposes and setting up his plans against the plans and the purposes of god and so here's the king of heaven and earth who has his plans and his purpose and here is the ruler of egypt who is who has his plans and his purposes And so this is Pharaoh's first plan. Verse 10, we see him in fear saying, well, let's deal shrewdly with them unless they multiply. And if war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us and escape the land. Notice that's an important other part that's being given. Pharaoh does not want these people to be mighty and he doesn't want them to be many. And then the other statements made in verse 10, and he doesn't want them to leave. These are the three promises that God had said was going to happen with Israel. There's going to be many, they're going to be mighty, and he told Jacob, and they're not staying in Egypt, they're coming back. So immediately chapter 1 opens with, we have a conflict on our hands, we're going to have a collision of powers as the ruler of heaven and earth has said, this is the way it's going to be, and the ruler of Egypt said, this is the way it's going to be. So that we see now in verse 12, that even though they are oppressing them and oppressing the Hebrews, Hebrews and making their lives miserable and putting taskmasters over them. Notice what's happening. The more they're oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread. Who's winning? God's winning. God is blessing his people, even though Pharaoh is doing everything he can to prevent the people from being mighty and many and leaving. Here is God continuing to bless, continuing to make them strong and continuing to multiply such that it says in verse 13. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and in brick and in all kinds of work in the field in all their work they ruthlessly made them work as slaves how many ways can you say it was terrible ruthlessly made them work as slaves they were embittered in their lives terrible scene that is given to them as they are dealing with this affliction and i just want you to see that here is god who is blessing his people and in the process of blessing his people and keeping his promise it's causing them to suffer As God is fulfilling His Word and keeping His promises and blessing His people, the outcome is suffering. That their lives are bitter. That they're being afflicted. That the process of God doing good by His people is actually causing a conflict and causing affliction and suffering. Which, this is not a surprise to God. In fact, everything that is unfolding in this first chapter was all according to the plan and the foreknowledge of God. Reverse all the way back to God coming to Abraham in Genesis 15. And listen to what God said. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. 
and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. That had to be a staggering thing because at this time, Abram's still Abram. (laughs) No children. And your descendants, they are going to be sojourners in a land that's not theirs. They're going to be servants there. Notice God says, and they're going to be afflicted. This is all a part of the plan of God. This is all a part of His purposes, exactly as He's setting all of this to happen. And so here is God blessing His people. And I want us to recognize, despite the fact that they are suffering, God knows exactly what He's going to do. That's what He's telling Abram. is They're going to suffer, they're going to be afflicted, but then I'm going to raise them out of there. I'm going to deliver them from the trouble that they're in. And I I think it's important to underline for all the work that we've done from Ruth and from Job in our Sunday nights, we underline it here in Exodus chapter 1. Here is even in our sufferings, God's accomplishing His purposes, isn't He? And that's what Exodus 1 immediately wants to show us yet again. That His people are being afflicted. They're suffering. Their lives are bitter. And everything is going according to plan. We have a hard time with that. Because we think everything going according to plan means I'm comfortable, I'm happy, I have money, I'm successful, and everything I do just goes perfectly. And I want us to see that actually it's usually the other way around almost all the time now at this point. We're getting used to this idea that suffering, affliction, trial, difficulty is actually the plan of God who's accomplishing His purposes through those things. And here it is again that is presented to us, this very picture, so that with suffering, this can also be within the plan and the purpose of God. God blessing His people despite their suffering because God knows what He's about to do. And thus He allows it to happen. For God knows what He's about to accomplish through His purposes. It's interesting that what we are about to see here is that Pharaoh is going to make three bold attempts to resist God just in this opening scene. He's going to try to resist God a lot throughout this book. But already, here's our first resistance. The people are too mighty and too many, so what will we do to try to stop that? We will oppress them. We will enslave them. We will make their lives miserable. We will make them full of affliction. And the response of God that was given to us here is, the more that they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread out. Pharaoh is not done. In verses 15 and 16, we see Pharaoh goes now to the Hebrew midwives and says, here's what I want you to do. When you see that it is a boy being born, I want you then to kill the child as the child's being born. The most likely implication that's being given here is a suffocation or something like that so that the mother would not know that that there was a murder that was going on, but just be like, oh, your child didn't make it, your child was born, stillborn, and try to do it in that fashion. That's the idea of this. If you see it's a boy that's about to be born, then just go ahead and kill it right right there so that no nobody will know the better and know how it's too bad that the, the boys died and i think that verse 17 is so powerful but the midwives feared god and they didn't do as the king of egypt commanded but let the male children live 
I submit to you what we have is one of the earliest examples of what the apostles would say later in Acts 5, we must obey God rather than men. And they're immediately understanding we're not going to keep that command. We understand that's not what we're going to do. And so they make a decision. And I want us to understand that is a courageous decision that they are making. The Pharaoh comes to them and goes, what do you think you're doing that you're not doing as I ordered you to? And they make up quite a funny story. Well, you know, the the Hebrew women are not like those Egyptian women, you know. (laughs) They already have the child before we get there. And so what are you going to do? You Egyptian women are weak. And the Hebrew women are strong. That's the very thing they just basically say. But I want you to notice something that's given to us a couple times over here. God blesses them. Verse 21, because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. God blesses them. says, look at their obey me. They care about what I say. They're not going to kill these children. They're going to do exactly as God says. And then notice what happens with that as well in chapter 1 verse 20. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. You seen something here? Pharaoh's second attempt. We're going to stop the promises of God. I'm not going to let them leave. I do not want them to be mighty and strong. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to kill all the male boys two years old and under. We're going to get, if as soon as they're born, let's get them. And then we notice the line says, God's promises continue to work forward. And the people multiplied and grew mighty and strong. I hope you are hearing some Psalm 2 in this tension that's happening in Exodus 1. Where Psalm 2 begins with, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bones apart and cast away their cords from us. Here's the kings of the earth saying, We will not submit to the will of God. Let's fight against them and cast off these shackles. And verse 4, And he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Here's Pharaoh trying to prevent Israel from multiplying and being strong. And is going to try to prevent them from leaving. And God is already setting up. That's not going to happen. God keeps his word. God keeps his promises. And so a beautiful picture of courage here by the midwives who fear God. They obey God. Wonderful seeing that they are unwilling to commit the sin in killing these children. Which then leads now to Pharaoh's third attempt in verse 22. Since the Hebrew midwives fail at this and since slavery and this oppression and affliction and hardship fails, he makes the decree that all the Egyptians... What they are to do is to take every son that is born to the Israelites and to throw them into the river. And I want to underline that because I want us to recognize now the whole nation is culpable. Now it's been given to all the peoples, not just Pharaoh, who's saying to the Hebrew midwives, I want you to do this. But now it's upon all the people, all the Egyptians. If you see an Israelite boy born, you cast that child into the river. And so now we have a national problem that that sits before us. And so this is the scene that is given to us. And we haven't got to the birth of Moses yet. That's in chapter 2. You need all of this introduction and warm-up because it is setting up something that is magnificent about what God was going to do in the future. 
We mentioned last week, and we're going to mention this quite a bit as we take our time and we look at the book of Exodus, is that we are going to observe these parallels and foreshadowing and, and types of Christ and also his people through this scene. What I'd like for you to do now is if you go over to Matthew chapter 2, and I want you to notice how strongly the beginning of Jesus' life matches what happens in Exodus chapter 1. Over in Matthew chapter 2, and we'll begin reading in verse 13. The first 12 verses, we have the depiction and the, the account told to us about the wise men who are coming to find Jesus so that they can worship him. And so we see now uh, in verse 12, they're warned in a dream not to return to Herod. They departed to their own country by another way. Verse 13. Now when they had departed, this is Matthew 2, Matthew 2, verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. He arose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Egypt, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he arose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. Now that is a narrative that I know that we have traversed over many times in in, in reading. And and sometimes you just kind of read that and go, well, okay, here's what happened. You know, Jesus has to move to Egypt and then he has to move back. And so there you go. It's the protection of Jesus so that he isn't killed. And really what we're said, having set up here is something far bigger than that, far more amazing, amazing than that. One of the things that is interesting that's the most obvious in terms of the connections that's given to us regarding the birth of Jesus and the birth of Moses is this connection to the scene that is unfolding. Here is Herod. As he gives a decree that all the male children who were two years old and under in that region, including the town of Bethlehem, were to be killed. And so it is interesting that the introduction to the life of Jesus is that we see a ruler trying to kill all the infant boys in the region. And the introduction to Moses before we see his birth is that we have this evil ruler trying to kill all the infant boys in the land. You have set up for us already before you know anything about Jesus. You already get a sense of this is the one that God said would be the prophet like Moses who was going to rise up. Here the circumstances surrounding his birth match the circumstances surrounding the birth of Moses as well. But the second fulfillment is perhaps even more staggering. You'll notice That God tells Joseph, I want you to take Jesus and Mary, and I want you to flee to Egypt. Now, why does God do that? He could have ran an awful lot of places. 
run to Galilee. Keep, keep, go to Damascus. Go even further. Just go north. You know, go northeast. You can go over that direction. Go over toward that Mesopotamian area. There's an awful lot of directions to run. Why does God tell Joseph, you need to go to Egypt? And why is that recorded for us here as being so important to observe that Jesus went to Egypt? He went down into Egypt. Well, don't forget one of the overarching themes that we have seen in our study of the prophets. We've seen it particularly in the Gospel of John identified for us again and again, particularly in the book of Isaiah as well, is Christ represents Israel. Christ is constantly described as the new new Israel. He is the true vine rather than Isaiah's degenerate vine in describing Israel. No, here is Christ. He is the true vine. He is the true Israel. And so just as you have the, the time of God's people leaving the promised land and going down into Egypt, here is Jesus going down, leaving the promised land and going down into Egypt. But not only that, God has promised, I'm going to bring Israel back out of Egypt and put them back in the land. And notice what is told for us in the text as well. When Herod dies, what happens? God brings Jesus, the true Israel, back out of Egypt. And notice Matthew stands on that strongly in in verse 15. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. Now, we don't have time to study Hosea. But if you read Hosea, Hosea's prophecy has absolutely nothing to do with Jesus. It is a prophecy as a reminder about how God had called Israel his son and called them out of that slavery, out of Egypt and brought them into the promised land and delivered them and redeemed them. And here we have Matthew grabbing that and saying, remember how God did that with Israel and brought them out of Egypt and called them his son? Here's Jesus. For Jesus now is son of God, called from Egypt and comes back into the land. And so you have this intense typography and and intense typology that's given to us here in reminding us of this beautiful picture that God was predicting in Exodus that he was going to deliver his people and all the things that are unfolding, even in chapter one, before we even have the arrival of Moses. All of the events were laid out in such a way so that they could be repeated again when Christ came. So that we would see this Jesus is the new Moses. By the way, that was the intention for that audience who's there in the first century going, this is our new Moses. This is the prophet that God had promised he would raise us up and lead us. There's one other picture, one other typological image that's given to us. And I think it's important to observe not only do we see Jesus, but we always see with Jesus the people of God and who they would be and what they would accomplish. It's one of the great things out of Isaiah 49 that we were able to look at this morning. If I had 30 more minutes out of Isaiah 49, it's so interesting because in that text that we we looked at this morning of Isaiah 49, verse 6, when he says, it's too light a thing that you would uh, call that you would restore Israel, I'll send you as a light to the nations and salvation to the ends of the earth. Three verses earlier, he called that servant Israel. 
Israel, my servant. Your, Jesus is the Israel. And so Isaiah 49, here is, here is Isaiah saying, this is the new Israel and these are the new people. Whoever belongs to Him is the new Israel. Whoever is joined to Him, they're enjoying covenant relationship. John 15, I'm the true vine. You're the branches. Whoever abides in Me. He doesn't say you're the true Israel, but that's the impact of it is you are belonging to me and you participate in this. And so when we look at pictures of Jesus, it's not just simply of him, but there are also pictures of the people of God that we're going to see in the Exodus, their redemption and how that plays out. I want you to consider what we have seen here in chapter one. What is highlighted to us again and again is every time God's people are afflicted, what happens? They multiply and spread out. Have you ever thought it interesting when you read the book of Acts that you get this declaration? As Saul is persecuting the church here right after the death of Stephen, Acts 8 verse 1, Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judah, of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And Acts is setting up that same dynamic. What happens with the people of God when they are afflicted and when they are persecuted and when they are going through difficulty? They continue to spread and grow. And that's the difficulty that is presented as a pretty consistent theme in the book of Acts. Every time there is an attempt to stop this movement of Jesus, it only explodes all the more. We get this great scene with the Sanhedrin. And okay, we bring them all in, and okay, and, and you get this one wise man, Gamaliel, saying, you know, maybe this is of God. We should just kind of leave them alone and and, and not be persecuting, because if it's if it's not of God, it will fizzle out like all the other ones that have happened before. And if it is of God, we don't want to be found resisting. And of course, what does the Sanhedrin do but turn around and beat them and tell them, stop preaching in the name of Jesus? And what happens from that? They go out rejoicing and they keep on proclaiming. They walk right back out in the temple court and just keep on preaching. They just keep right on going. We haul them back in. Didn't we tell you not to do that? Didn't we tell you to stop? What you are getting for a picture of what the people of God are about is, yes, they're afflicted, but they're going to multiply. They're going to keep spreading the gospel and they're going to continue to be blessed by God. Every effort that is ever done to try to annihilate Christianity and destroy the people of God only causes the word of God to spread all the more. It's one of the wonderful things that you see in the book of Acts. Every time they try to control and constrain the Word of God and constrain those disciples, what are they doing? Praising God, worshiping God, and they continue to spread and continue to go. That's Acts 8 is amazing. Apparently, the only people left behind in Jerusalem at the moment are the apostles, and it says the rest left, and everywhere they went, they went preaching. No one said, oh, I guess we better stop We're gonna not, because we're being afflicted too much. From Exodus all the way to Acts, God's blessing doesn't mean the absence of suffering. God is blessing His people in Exodus, and they are afflicted. 
And we run all the way to the book of Acts. And now here is the new people of God, the new Israel who are experiencing salvation and new covenant. And what's happening to them? The very same thing. Affliction, persecution, trial, difficulty, suffering. And yet we know God's blessing them. They're multiplying upon multiplying. We go from 3,000 to 5,000 to countless. We can't even begin to count them anymore. Just exploding. And we are seeing in Exodus. We are seeing in Acts. We saw it in Job. We saw it in Ruth. We're seeing it all over the place as we study God's word. God allows suffering and he is accomplishing his purposes through it. He is always accomplishing his purposes through it. This is the consistent picture that is given is that though we suffer, though we may be afflicted, though we go through difficulties, God blesses his people. And we just need a different definition of what that blessing looks like. Because I want the blessing to be, that means I sit on my couch and I watch TV in air conditioning and therefore I'm blessed by God. And that's not how God defines it. God defines this in a much more spiritual way. That look at what His people are doing. They are growing. They are teaching. The borders of the kingdom of are expanding. People are coming to Christ. The name of God is being glorified. This is the purpose of God. And how interesting it has to be to see that that happens often through affliction, persecution, and suffering. I've mentioned to us many times, I will continue to say it wherever I go, we have lived in a time that's an anomaly for Christianity. Historically, the people of God are persecuted and afflicted. All the way back to the Exodus, the people of God are afflicted. And you just keep watching them all the way go forward. They're constantly afflicted. The people of God in Acts are afflicted. The book of Revelation, seven churches of Asia, they are suffering and they are dying for the cause of Christ. They are being afflicted. We must have a sense of who we are and what our purpose is. I look forward in two Sundays. On Sunday morning, this is the big idea that the Apostle Paul has in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. When I get back, Lord willing, we're going to look at verses 6 through 10. And the whole idea is you've been saved for a purpose. There is something that God has called you to do. And it is not the call of joy and relaxation and taking it easy and, and having the good life here and all of that. When the Apostle Paul opens that up, you know what he describes what servants of God look like? Afflicted, persecuted, beaten. He says, this is what it looks like to be a follower. And we must be ready to serve God with the same purpose. I fear that our time of prosperity and time where we have been allowed to flourish without resistance may have weakened our resolve to handle resistance when it comes. It's just so foreign to us now. Whereas for centuries, that's the way it always was. To be a servant of God means to proclaim his word and spread the kingdom and spread the message regardless of the obstacles.
And God blesses his people through that tribulation. If that time comes for us where we have persecution, a greater resistance, more suffering for the cause of Christ, may we not look at that scene and think that God has turned his back on his people and is not blessing us. Quite the opposite. God always remains with his people and he blesses and multiplies in the face of persecution in the face of suffering, in the face of affliction, in the face of death. We believe historically that probably only one apostle made it through death to na- by natural causes. This was the consistent theme of what it meant to be a follower of him. In 2 Corinthians, the audience, the, the people there, they're saying that Paul is not a worthy apostle because look at all of his suffering look at how he all the stuff he goes through and and what's paul's response to that but that's right i'm the aroma of death everywhere i go it's what it means to be a follower of jesus i hope we'll see that even from the book of exodus it was already setting up that picture the people of god are afflicted and god blesses through that suffering. I look forward to continuing on in a couple of weeks. Let's pour, we'll pour some books out, we'll sing a song now, and we invite you to come to Jesus. And I hope you get a picture of the darkness before the dawn. That, that's what that chapter sets up, is that God is with His people, and here they are afflicted and suffering, and yet God can be with them. And I hope that that will give you the resolve for whatever you face in your life, whether it be fear to proclaim God's word to others, whether you are concerned and lack boldness because of what others may say or do to you, whether you're going through trials of whatever kind regarding your faith that pulls you away from God and challenges you and pushes you to reconsider your commitment to God. I hope that you will see God looks at our suffering and affliction difficulty and says, I'm blessing you through that. Do not look at your difficulty as God turning his back. But God is with you all the way through. Will you have the resolve to stay with him to the very end? Will you turn away from your sins? If you have not been immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins, tonight's the night to do that. Won't you come now while we stand and while we